So please turn with me this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. We've been working through this book for the last couple of months now, and even though this book is roughly 3,000 years old, it was written, uh, I'm pretty certain that it was written around 950 BC, even though it is 3,000 years old, I trust that you've noticed thus far how modern this book still is. Solomon, the, the son of David, the man that we have identified as the author of this book, has been teaching us things that have been relevant to mankind back then and are still very relevant to us today as well too. And these things are going to remain relevant to mankind until Christ comes back to collect his bride whenever he chooses to do so. Uh, the same sort of questions, the same sort of struggles over meaning and purpose that were felt by Solomon and the, and the people in his day are still felt today. So this book is a very practical book, a very helpful and a very illuminating book. But sadly, throughout the, the history of study in this book, many have come away from it with a, a different idea than that. Many have gravely misunderstood it. People often take it as pessimistic. They sometimes think of Ecclesiastes as a, as a depressing book, as a book that is devoid of the good news and benefits that come to us in the gospel. It is in sense seen as a book that offers no hope, but only laments what the author of the book calls life under the sun and vanity. Uh, the third edition of the Dictionary of Cultural Literacy goes as far as to say that the argument and the tone of this book are very unlike those of the other books of the Bible. But is that really the case? Have those things been what you've found to be true as we've been going through this book? Have, have you felt that your joy is missing as we've been looking through these pages of Ecclesiastes? Or have you felt that your joy is just simply missing in life? Because if that is the case, then I would absolutely commend to you this book known as Ecclesiastes. This book would be very helpful, helpful to you, rightly understood. When we, when we do understand this book correctly, it, it becomes a book that can help to lift our eyes off ourselves and whatever situation it is that we are in, whatever problems or difficulties that we have in life, and then to place them rightly upon God, to place them rightly upon Christ Jesus in gratefulness and thanksgiving unto Him. So it is a book of great help to us, church. Very much like every other book of the Bible as well then, that is of great help to us. It, it even mentions, the things that are mentioned here in Ecclesiastes are mentioned throughout every other book of the Bible as well, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, pastor and commentator Douglas Wilson notes that Ecclesiastes calls us to joy, but to a joy which thinks a joy which does not shrink back from the hard questions. And I, I am compelled by the evidence in this book to agree with this man. It is a book that calls us to joy. Ecclesiastes itself is, is a book that calls us to joy. Now, it just so happens that we're not only finding ourselves at a new chapter this morning here in chapter 3, but also at a new section or a new division in this book. And so in previous weeks... We've considered, we've considered the, the vanity of life through the pursuit of wisdom, through the pursuit of knowledge, through the pursuit of pleasure, through, and through work, through toil. And he notes that satisfaction cannot come from anything within the power or competence of man, which is, is not a bad thing. That's not, it's not bad that satisfaction can't come through the power and competence of man. We are made to give glory to God. But now his direction is going to change. He's going to teach us this morning and, and going further here through this book about the providence and the sovereignty of God. And since we're at a new section, I want to take just a short moment to review some of the things that we've already talked about just so we don't lose sight of the goal and, and the intent of this import, important book. So first, a, a quick word about the author of the letter. Should be familiar to us that we've identified the author of the letter as Solomon, uh, King Solomon, the, the son of David under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But I wanted to remind us that he identifies himself in this letter as Kohelet. Um, he, he reveals himself to be this man named Kohelet. And that's Q-O-H-E-L-E-T-H. -E -E that's, that's actually... The, the name of the book in Hebrew even. 
The, the name of this book in Hebrew is Kohelet. We, we get Ecclesiastes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And then, of course, in our English translations, we see, we see either teacher or preacher substituted for this word Kohelet. But I'm going to refer to the one um, speaking to us in this book as Kohelet rather than simply preacher. We are comfortable with what a preacher is for the most part, perhaps maybe even too comfortable. Uh, but Kohelet carries in it this idea of more than what we might understand as to just simply be a preacher. He, he is a, he's a gatherer of listeners. He is a, a collector of sentences or ideas. He's a gatherer of thoughts in addition to one who addresses an audience. He's a, he's a philosopher and a, a professor, and he's aiming to teach us in this book. And so I'll be referring to him as Kohelet, and hopefully that'll lend to keeping a certain freshness to this, to this book this morning. Secondly, what is Kohelet hoping to teach us? And this is, it's very important that we always keep this in our minds as we study this book. He's not just talking about life under the sun, about vanity in order to depress us, remember? The, the goal of Kohelet is to help us to ask and wrestle through the big and hard questions in life. And then in that, to have a joy and trust in God as an end. He helps us to think about what the meaning of life is. You know, why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much injustice in the world? Why is there all this evil? Why does it happen to me? Why, is this life worth living? Does God even care about or even know about what is happening in our lives? Down to the smallest detail, Kohelet is helping us to ask these questions and look to God in them. And listen, he's not going to give us clear and super detailed answers to all the questions we might ask. We simply, in some sense, aren't made to know everything. We aren't able to handle knowing everything even. We aren't made to be God. We are made to need God. And so Kohelet is going to direct us to not just simply drift through life asleep, to, but to deal with life under the sun and to deal with all of its hardships, all of its questions, to deal with vanity in the comfort of fearing God and trusting in Him. And thirdly, one quick thing about that. There is this notion of life under the sun, and it is like a, 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 a vanity that kind of runs like a thread through this whole letter, and it influences the chapter's um, or influences the discoveries that Kohelet makes throughout the different chapters. The NIV translate the New International Version, it's a Bible translation, it translates this word vanity um, as meaningless. And although there is an aspect of vanity that coincides with that, that's not the full use of the word that Kohelet has in mind here when he's using it. Um, he's not, that's not what he really wants us to always think of. Whenever we see this word vanity, we're not supposed to be thinking of meaninglessness. The word translated as vanity in English is from the Hebrew word habel. That's H-E-V-E-L. But the thing to know is that it doesn't always mean that things are futile or meaningless. Often, it refers to how some things in life are just incomprehensible for us. So for example, when I if you think about, for me at least, when I think about the eternality of God, I, I know that it is true. The Bible teaches it. I confess it. I believe it. The fact that God is eternal, that he doesn't have a beginning or an end. But when I, when I really try to apply my mind to understanding this, it is habel. It is, it is incomprehensible. I don't have a framework to think about a being that doesn't have a beginning. Everything in my framework, everything in my world has a start. It begins, except for God. When that humbles us, it causes us to worship Him. It reminds us that He is totally other than His creation. But it is habel. It is incomprehensible. And then also, this word habel, and this is really the driving force behind much of Kohelet's use of it, um, is, is what commentators Philip Riken and Walter Kaiser call a, a life in transience. A life that is impacted by things that change, yet it some, somehow, some way, 
still remain the same. Habel refers to an inscrutable repetitiveness. So, for example, you'll go to work tomorrow, and then you'll come home, and you'll do the same thing again on Tuesday. You washed the dishes last night. They'll need to be washed again. If your house is like mine, you do laundry 10 days a week. It, it never ends. You know, this, there is this inscrutable repetitiveness about life that shouldn't leave us unsatisfied. The fact that this is the way life is should not be something that leaves us unsatisfied and depressed. But Kohelet is teaching us that we should delight in God for these things. That we can enjoy God and we can enjoy this life as we see it as a gift from God even in the face of vanity, even in the face of Habel. And that is far from everything being meaningless, friends. In fact, what it means is that everything has meaning, especially for the one who fears the Lord. And that's what Coalette was teaching us last week. And so now he, he, he gives us the reason, that's what he was teaching us there at the end of chapter 2. And so now he's given us the reason as to why he can come to this conclusion that we should enjoy the habel of life, the repetitiveness of life. And his answer might be a surprise to some, maybe not though, because I know that you know, this doctrine is, is loved here at First Family Church. But his, his reason as to why we can enjoy the habel of life is that God is sovereign. And that he, that he works everything that happens through providence. Now, by sovereignty, we mean that God is in complete and total control of all things that ever happened, that will happen, or that will exist. That everything happens according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. That he does whatever he pleases, Psalm 115, verse 3. It refers to, to everything, and providence is simply the, the working out of God's plan in time. That's all providence means. It's the working out of God's will in time. It refers to all things. We've talked about these things before, so we're not going to go into much more detail other than that and what we're going to specifically talk about in the text. But um, I, I want us, for the rest of our time, to really consider what he's saying here in, in chapter 3, verse 1 through 8, and then why we should have joy because of these things. In, in the immediate verses and the chapters coming after uh, verse 8, Kohelet is going to deal with applications of this doctrine. And he's going to deal with objections against this doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And I'm only going to be giving a cursory view of this doctrine here this morning since we're just considering these, these short verses where he's just introducing this idea. And I, I get it. I, I realize that this topic, this doctrine, is, is one that can often lend to a person having more questions at the end than they did at, at the beginning of it. And if that's the case, you know, I, I welcome any questions. I know I'm not going to be answering every question here this morning about it. But at the same time, I would also ask that you trust that Kohelet has gone on before you. That the reason why he's writing this book is because he's wanting us to deal with these questions. And so maybe it's possible that some of these questions you have about the doctrine of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in light of that, they more, more than likely will be addressed by Kohelet as we progress through this book naturally. So um, let's read the text this morning and then we'll pray together after it. The reading of the Word of God, beginning at verse 1 in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. That is God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he grant us understanding and apply it to our lives. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you for preserving your word for us. As our brother Elder Clint prayed this morning, we know that your word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce the vision of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow. And we pray that it would do that to us this morning, Lord, that it would open us up and show us how much it is that we need you and how wonderful and great it is that you are. Let us believe everything that is true, Lord, and guide our time in your word. We know that we need your strength to rightly understand it. I need it to rightly teach it, God. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give strength as you will, all for Christ's glory's sake. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this, this passage is a familiar one, I trust, to many of us. It, it certainly is the most famous passage in Ecclesiastes. Maybe it's even one of the most famous passages in the Bible. People who aren't all that familiar with Christianity tend to even know about this passage. Even at you know, funerals where a person might be a secular, secularist, they don't know the Lord, this passage is often read there. And that might have something to do with the bird's hit song, turn, 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 or, or maybe not. But for whatever reason, this is a well-known passage. But certainly we don't want to approach it with a cavalier attitude just because it's a well-known passage. And we certainly don't want to approach it that way because we think we know something about it because of a pop song. And, and the reason for that is because this little section, which this poem, and by the way, you can tell that it's a poem kind of from the, the couplets that were contained in it, but also how the, our English translations will lay it out with that poetic form there. Um, but we could tell that this section is an, is an important hinge upon Kohelet's thinking. He's shifting in how he wants to keep, or how he wants to help us to ask the meaningful and formative questions in life. In verses 1 through 8, Kohelet is telling us that the key to having joy in light of Habel is recognizing God's sovereignty and providence. That if we want to have joy in light of this, this repetitiveness of life, we have to recognize God's sovereignty and His providence. The very realities that weary and depress and drive the unbeliever to pursue sin the realities that drive them to find purpose in things they aren't intended to, those things become the realities that comfort the believer as they realize those things are the manifestation of God's providence. Things aren't meaningless. Things are not out of control. And in fact, everything has meaning and everything is under the control of Yahweh. Look at Ecclesiastes 1 for a moment. You might have to turn back a page for my Bible. It's just, it's right within that span of two pages. Turn your attention to chapter 1, uh, verse 3 to 8. Really, the section is, th is to 11, but we're going to look at 3 to 8. There it reads, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing." So maybe you see right away the similarities between these two passages. There's a similar cadence to them. This passage is poetic as well, too. But what is Kohelet's verdict at the end of that passage? It's that all things are wearisome. Man's verdict about the events in life apart from the wisdom of God given in fearing the Lord is that all things are wearisome. Maybe you might say meaningless even. He looks at the cycles of nature outside of his control. He looks at the movement of the seasons and the waters and the cycles and the winds. All these things are outside of his control. And what does it get him? It makes him wary, wearisome. Now, if you turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and suddenly there's a different feel to this repetition of the same kinds of truth. And it's a, it's a humbling revelation. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what has been planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, and on and on. Again, 
He is rehearsing things which are entirely out of his control in this life. But what's the difference? Well, the difference you'll see back in verse 3 of chapter 1. There in verse one, chapter 1 of verse 3, says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Those three words at the end there, under the sun. Now, if you look over at Ecclesiastes 3, 1, similar statement, but he says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So note the difference. In chapter 1, he's saying under the sun. In chapter 3, he's saying under heaven. Under the sun is that phrase that is associated with Habel. But now he's changing it ever so slightly, but ever so significantly, reminding us that these things that are out of our control, these things that just seem to happen, they are something that we can find satisfaction in. That the wise people, which he mentioned at the end of chapter 2, will be comforted and satisfied in the truths that he'll expound upon in verses 1 through 8 in chapter 3. And really, the wise person that he mentioned at the end of chapter 2 would also be satisfied in those things that we read in chapter 1 as well, too. The wise person, the one who's looking to God, the one who's fearing the Lord. Now, verse 1 is essentially setting the stage for 2 to 8. Uh, he's setting up the events that will be described in 2 to 8 as, as, as really the, the grounds of their joy and security because God is sovereign. In fact, all of the events that are described in verse 2 through 8 can be summed up under this truth that he asserts here in verse 1. It, verse 1 is universal, it's comprehensive. And I, so I'm going to take the statements in verse 1 kind of in reverse order as to what a Kohelet gives them. So first of all, what he's talking about now is every matter under heaven. This is life considered in its widest possible perspective. He, he's, he's wanting us to take the perspective of God. This is looking at life not just through the narrow prescription of our earthly viewpoints, not simply under the sun apart from God, but factoring in God's sovereign rule over everything. He's making it plain now that God is sovereign over all things. Everything that happens in what we might call our day-to-day -day lives is in view here. He's leaving nothing out. It's every matter under heaven. And there's a time for it. And then secondly, notice that he says there is a season for everything. What that means is that everything happens at the appointed time. Not only, not only is there a time for everything that happens, but that time has been appointed. That time has been determined by Almighty God. There is a season for it. According to Scripture, things don't just simply happen. Life is not the result of just some random sequence of impersonal natural operations. It's not like the world got started, some dice were rolled, and everything is just falling apart at random. That is not what Scripture teaches at all. Everything is the result of the purposeful, personal direction of a sovereign and almighty God. Uh, the perspective changes between chapter 1 and 3, but the events are the same. And some of the events that we'll be confronted with are deeply disturbing and wounded and wounding and grieving. I mean, who would choose a time to weep? Who would choose a time to mourn, to experience pain and to suffer? Uh, the same events which frustrate the sinner described at the end of chapter 2, however, are seen as the manifestation of the purposeful, personal, sovereign, providential God in chapter 3. And Kohelet is pointing out to us here in verses 1 to 8 that the wise man, that the believer, sees the inscrutable repetitiveness of life as the workings of God's providence. And we could have joy then because of that. Now, that's not a depressing thing. That because God is sovereign, we can have joy in these things that happen. The very regularity that frustrates the unbeliever in chapter 1, and verses 3 to 11, leads to optimism and comfort and confidence and hope here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If we are trying to live life without God, those kind of, of frustrating events, you know, cancer, marital breakups, the loss of children, the loss of jobs, fractured friendships, betrayals by family members and close friends, and on and on and on. All of those things, as painful as they are, if God is not in control, they are meaningless and fruitless. They mean nothing. They may hurt you, 
but they mean nothing in a universe that is simply existing according to random naturalistic and personal operation or chance. But in a universe which is ruled by the providence of God, for the one who is in a relationship with that living God through trusting in Christ, for the one who fears him, as we'll see later in chapter 3, there, there are no meaningless events, and there are no events in which we are simply the victim of unforeseen random chance. Everything, every event is ruled by our Father in heaven. For everything there is a season and a time for everything under heaven. And our response to those things that we cannot comprehend in this life, to the things that we can't control in life, to the things which grieve us in this life, our response to them is a barometer as to whether we are trusting in a God who is purpose, purposeful, personal, good, and has a providential plan at work in this world and in our lives or not. And don't be confused here either. This, this passage is not about a tyranny of time. Derek Kinder calls it that in his commentary, but then he backs off it, thankfully. This passage isn't about time marching on and just plowing us over, not caring for whatever or whoever comes in its path. It's not fatalism. God's sovereignty isn't fatalism. It's not that there are all these events that will happen in life and our responses don't matter. It's not that we don't have any sort of responsibility that is fatalism to think that. But that's not what Kohelet is teaching here. God is sovereign over every event that happens. He's fully in control, and yet we still maintain responsibility in our actions, as we'll come to read through this book. Kohelet, he's a professor. He is a sage. He is not just wanting to give us some easy out here and telling us to throw up our hands and be happy regardless of whatever is going on in our life. He wants us to think. He wants us to worship God rightly despite whatever Habel is before us. So you have two choices. You know, you could either believe that this life is the result of chance and of the random operation of nature, and if you do, there is no meaning in life at all, whether good or bad things. Or you can believe that it is all the result of the plan of a good and loving and merciful and gracious and purposeful sovereign God. And that is where the preacher, that is where Kohelet is pointing us. And you'll see this in the sermons over the next few weeks. But before he does that, he's going to get a bit more detailed about the sovereignty of God. And he's going to leave no room for doubt about the universality of God's sovereign control. And he does this over seven verses broken down into 14 couplets and a total of 28 statements. So two couplets per verse or four statements per verse, however you want to think of it. Um, now, each couplet is known as what's called a merism. It's a, it's a merism. A, a merism or a merismus is a rhetorical tool that combines two contrasting words in order to refer to an entirety. So he doesn't just have the two things in the couplet in view, in other words. He's looking to cover the whole range of human activity by appealing to a few contrasting words or phrases. So some other examples of merisms might be like heaven and earth, great and small, near and far, rich or poor. In other words, you pick two ends of the opposite spectrum and you speak of them to speak of a comprehensive reality, to speak of everything that might be captured in between them all. Um, and another thing, uh, before we look at them individually, these, these couplets, these merisms, they are not what we would call pre, uh, prescriptive. In other words, they're not instructive. Kohelet is not telling us here that these are things we need to be making time to do. These aren't marching orders for us. It's not an agenda for us to accomplish. Remember, he's explaining the sovereignty of God here. These passages are descriptive of God's providential control and workings through life, of his determinations, of his decrees. And Douglas Wilson, he notes that 
this section here, what it is doing is that we are being told that we have been placed in a world that we did not create or fashion, and this world has various repetitive cycles to which cycles we have been assigned by someone else. We are under the authority of these repetitions and have been placed under that authority by the hand and the purpose of God. So, so again, they are descriptive, not prescriptive. So let's turn our attention to this first couplet. So the first one is the most comprehensive, and therefore it is appropriately standing at the head of this list. A, a time to be born and a time to die. Now obviously these are, these are events that are set in motion by a sovereign God. I mean, did anyone of us here exist as a soul and, and choose the time that you were going to be born? You didn't. Of course not. That was something that was absolutely outside of your control. No one chooses the day that you were born on, and no one chooses the day that you'll die on. These are divinely appointed events. Our times are in God's hands, Psalm 31, 15 tells us. When we come into this world, God decides, Psalm 139, 16. The time of our death, God has appointed, Job 14, 13, Hebrews 9, 27. Now, maybe it's a little bit more complex than this you're thinking. I mean, for example, uh, Anna, my wife, and I, we have four children, and it was God's providential plan that they would all need to be born via a cesarean section. And because of that, we ended up having to choose the, the day that they would be born on when it became apparent that they weren't going to come on their own. But it's not like Silas or Oliver or Nora or MJ chose that day themselves. It was the providence of God working in cooperation, in this case, with our choice. But it's still properly said that God was sovereign over it, that he willed it, that this is the way that he set it up to be. On the other end, you know, we have to recognize that we live in a fallen world where people do commit suicide, where people, in a sense, you know, choose the day that they will die on. You may have seen this in the news recently. It's, it's a very, very tragic and heart-wrenching story. Um, a young Dutch girl, only 17 years old, was allowed by the government in Holland to take her life, a you know, euthanasia or whatever, government-assisted euthanasia for a 17-year-old girl um, because she was suffering so much. Uh, it's a heartbreaking story. Just thinking of the fact that a young girl would be suffering so much, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to think that such evil was done to her as a child, that she would be just so depressed and downtrodden and, and have PTSD just growing up at such a young age even. It's heartbreaking to think of that evil done to her. It's heartbreaking knowing that a government would offer this as a way out of suffering rather than urging her to get more help. But even in scenarios like suicides, scenarios like this one, the Lord God is still sovereign. You hear of countless failed suicide attempts and praise the Lord for those, for it's his mercy. But sometimes people are able to go through with it and God is still sovereign in appointing those times. That's what God is owning here. But here's the point of this marismus. Every event in a person's life, from the cradle to the grave, is under the divine government of Almighty God. Barry Webb says the time to die, which rewrites Habel over everything, is a time determined by God, but so are all the events that come in between them. Right away, you begin to see that this poem is describing the universal nature of God's sovereignty. And, and this fact, this reality, runs against the grain of the fallen nature of man. You know, mankind is the one that wants to be in control. Suicide even is an attempt to take this control from God to say that I'm going to choose the day when I, when I die. But Kohelet tells us that you have no control over when you come to this world and you have no control over when you leave this world. And in every event in between, birth and death is appointed by God. The second couplet reminds us that God's sovereignty extends to more than just the events in our lives. Uh, he does, we read Jesus talks about God numbering the hairs on our head. He, he lets us know that a sparrow doesn't fall from the sky apart from his appointment. Um, but also, every plant life is under the sovereign control of God. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. My wife, she really loves flowers. I, I don't even know how many rose bushes we have at our house. From front yard and the backyard combined, there's a lot. But um, 
you know, we've, we've planted lilies. We've got some tulips from the food pantry a while back, and, you know, they sprouted up with nice five points on them. But it, it's not like we went outside and we told them to grow. We didn't go tell these, these flowers, these plants to grow on their own. On a certain day, they grew up in God's time. We planted them, we watered them, but God in his sovereign control brings them. I think of the farmer who has to reap and to sow. He sows when? According to the season. When does he reap? According to the season, not according to his own predetermined will. God even uses the same language of planting and of uprooting in reference to his work in raising up and tearing down nations through the prophecy of Jeremiah. But again, the point is that God is in control over these matters. How many times do we read in the Old Testament that Israel is in the middle of famine or drought? The, the seasons come, the seasons go, but they don't have the crops to show for it, most often because of their rebellion. The point being, though, that God is sovereign over the times of planting and the times of uprooting. The third couplet, along with the next one, if you notice in verse 3, it says a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. It has to do with life as, as well, in, but in both in its creative and in its destructive efforts, both good and evil, killing and healing, and so forth. And God's not, he's not shy about these things, even though sometimes we fail to be able to discuss these things. Or sometimes it seems as if people are shy for God to claim the, these truths that God has no problem claiming for himself. So he says things like in Deuteronomy 32, 39, See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Or Isaiah 45, 6-7, I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So, so the Lord is in all of these things. He doesn't distance himself from certain events. So everything in and between this marismus is from the hand of the sovereign Lord of all. And so God's testimony about himself is that he is sovereign over all of life over birth and death, over planting and killing and healing. It's total. And we see that already, but he's going to offer more specifics too. Um, even the human responses to God's sovereign control are under God's sovereignty. That's what this next couplet, these next two couplets are teaching us. He says that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. You know, you don't, you don't choose the time that you're going to weep. You're brought to that time by the sovereign control of events. You don't choose the time that you're going to laugh. You're brought to laughing by God's sovereign control of events. We're not scheduling time in our iPhones to do these things. We don't schedule times to mourn, to celebrate, as if they're unrelated to the events that happen in our lives. We're brought to these times through the sovereign control of events. Those are human responses to the events that God is in control of, but we don't get to choose when they come, and we don't even get to often choose when they leave. You know, God might keep us in a time of mourning for maybe longer than we like, but this, this is his sovereign purpose to do so. so. The next couplets provide us with a very interesting discussion. Uh, it says, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Some commentators see that first couplet in terms of military conquest and then in the rebuilding after a conquest. For instance, uh, what, what history shows us is that sometimes conquering armies, when they would come in, they would take stones, large stones, small stones, and they would scatter them throughout the land in order to prevent the land from being fruitful. It would kill the crops. It would prevent people from building, from traveling smoothly. And then when war was over, you know, people would have to collect these stones. You'd have to you know, collect and move them out of the way to restore the fields to be able to build again. Um, but... And that, that's how some understand this. But Jewish rabbis had a different understanding of this text. The Old Testament scholar J.A. Loder notes that there is an age-old interpretation of this book that correctly reports that casting away stones refers to intimacy between married partners. And then, and then a time to gather stones would be abstaining from that marital intimacy. 
Uh, Jewish scholar Robert Gordish confirms that this interpretation by, or he confirms this interpretation about it being about intimacy by appealing to a midrash. A midrash is a is a ancient commentary on the Hebrew text. This particular one that that uh, Robert Gordish looks to is from the second century um, B.C. and it speaks um, about times of casting away stones and times of gathering stones depending upon the ceremonial cleanliness or uncleanliness of one's wife. That, that's in re- reference to a woman's menstrual cycle in case those roads aren't meeting up for you. What we see in the Old Testament is that God set up these, these rules, these laws for the glorification of his name and the people of Israel that they might be set apart. And so married couples were prevented from coming together intimately uh, during times of a woman's menstrual cycle. And so if that's the case, if that's what this you know, casting away stones means, then, then that would be supported by the next couplet. Um, if a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing is simply a softer parallel of the concept of sexual union. So in other words, what Kohelet is wanting us to know is that God is even in control of our times of intimacy and our times of abstinence as well too which may be encouraging or not. Um, <laughs> but it should be, because God is sovereign and he's good. Verse 6 introduced our next set of couplets. Um, and Dwayne Garrett, in his commentary, he just sums them up succinctly and perfectly, I think. He says, nothing in this world is ours forever, and that's the point. You know, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to throw away. Nothing is ours forever. We can't hold on to things forever. If you're a hoarder, that means you can't hold on to things forever. Hoarders, just like the rest of us, will die too. Uh, But, you know, I wonder though, have you ever lost something and then considered that it was God's will and part of his sovereign plan for it to be lost? I've heard people speak like that, maybe not even knowing that that is what they are doing. I've heard people say after losing something, Something like, you know, well, maybe someone else needed it more than I did. You might have heard something like that before from people. That's essentially affirming that God is sovereign and there are times for us to lose something. Uh, For Christmas this past year, Anna got me a set of AirPods and I I really like them a lot. I I enjoy not having to be tethered to my phone when I go for a jog or when I do other things. I don't have to worry about the cord ripping out of the socket there. But they went missing for about a month, maybe a little bit longer than a month, I'm not sure. Now, I'll tell you, I, I was not, I'm not so pious as to think that someone must have needed them more than me. <laughs> that, that thought didn't, wasn't going through my mind. Um, I was stuck in a time of seeking for probably a bit too long. And I was having to do everything that I could to prevent myself from going out and repurchasing these because, you know, I mean, they're not cheap. Uh, they were a gift, and I, you know, I was grateful to have them. But I, I wanted, you know, I wanted it to be a time to keep and not a time to lose. <laughs> you know, we, but we don't always get to choose those times. Now, thankfully, and praise the Lord, He was merciful to me. They, they did show up after I offered to pay my boys for finding them. And... <laughs> Took about a month, and I suspect a certain two-year-old who has who has learned how to push chairs up to the counters walked away with them. But but the fact is that nothing is ours forever. You know, God is sovereign over all the stuff we own. He's sovereign over the money we have. He's in control of it all. And then couplets eleven and twelve, a time to tear apart, a time to sew together. It, this may very well be a repetition of the couplet we mentioned earlier already. I believe it is verse 4. It is. In other words, what he's saying here is that there's a time to go to a funeral. There's a time to tear your garment, as was common in Hebrew culture. There's a time to stop grieving. There's a time to rend your garment, to repair your garment. Excuse me. Couplet 12 says that there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak, which may actually be connected through Jewish custom to the tearing and sewing of one's garment. What happened when God and his sovereignty suggested Job to Satan? You know, Job is given into Satan's hand, we read in Job chapter 1, and then we read that the Chaldeans and the Sabians come against Job's wealth. And they take, you know, his livestock, his, his, his fields, 
They take all that for themselves as part of God's sovereign will and plan. And then a great wind, perhaps a tornado, takes the life of his children. And Job's response in that is to tear his robe and to seek the Lord, like, you know, we, like we sang in that song earlier. But he's, then he's given it into Satan's hand once again with some re- protection remaining from God. And Job, at this point in chapter 2, he especially loses it all. His, his health is gone. His wife isn't supporting him. And then he has three friends show up. And when they get there, they see the condition that Job is in. And so and they, they weep and they rend their garment. They tear their clothes. They throw dust in the air towards the heavens that it might land on their head. And they're, they're there to mourn with Job. It's a time of mourning that the Lord has brought And then we read that they just sat there with him. Uh, They were silent for seven days and seven nights, we read. And and I kind of think that was probably Job's favorite part of their visit. Um, But what God is saying here is that he is sovereign over how we respond to the times of despair and also over how we interact with others in those times. He's sovereign over it all, everything in between. Couplets 13 and 14, the last two couplets, really bring together the polar opposites of human relationships, love and hate, war and peace, and everything there in between, the whole, covering the whole spectrum of human emotions, and even the state of nations, and all of these things are under the control of God. And, and, you know, this last couplet especially is very clear as we read through Scripture. We would need weeks to cover every event in which God claims control over the doings of nations. We might be inclined to think of Isaiah chapter 10, in which Isaiah is prophesying about the judgment that Israel is going to receive. And he mentions that he's going to bring Assyria onto them uh, as an object of his wrath against their sin. And he's going to use Assyria to deliver this judgment, this punishment to them, to bring this calamity to Israel. And he calls them, and then he says that later after that, at a point in time after that, he's also going to punish Assyria because they were proud in their going against Israel. He references them as the, the head of the axe, but he's the one swinging it. And so you see this relationship between God's sovereignty and their responsibility at the same time. God's bringing it about, but it's in conjunction, it's in cooperation. He wasn't forcing Assyria to do anything that they didn't want to do. They did it because they wanted to do it. But that, too, was under God's sovereign plan and control. Or you might even think of spiritual kingdoms. You think of uh, Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, when he's preaching there and he tells the people that, that Jesus was delivered over to death by the appointed and predetermined plan of God by the hands of these evil men. They wanted to do it, but it was going to happen. It was the predetermined plan of God. And so, so God is he's owning this. He is sovereign over these things. Now, as we've just briefly gone through this poem, the exact nature of these merisms could be debated, but I think the point that Kohelet is wanting to make is very clear. Everything that happens under the sun is an appointed event from God. Everything from birth to death, every word and event, every feeling in between is an event that is purposed by God. Whether it is constructive or destructive, whether it is good or evil, whether it is happy or whether it is sad, it all comes from the sovereign hand of a God and it fits into his sovereign plan. It has been appointed. It it is at the end of the day for his glory and for the good of those who love him. Now again... Colette is a professor, he's a wonderful teacher, and he's not simply teaching us this doctrine of God's sovereignty and his providential control, and then just asking us to be happy, and then to just confess that God is sovereign. He's not trying to heal our wounds superficially. He's causing us to think. He wants, he's wanting to make us wrestle and to deal with the hard questions of life. But he's not just saying sovereignty is the bottom line. Well, really, we need to look to Christ. Sovereignty and, and providence aren't going to answer all of life's questions. They aren't going to answer all the whys that we might have underneath the sun. They aren't going to give answers as to why you know, so-and-so got cancer. It's not going to answer why so-and-so died so young. It's not going to answer why one couple is infertile and why other couples have no problems. It's not going to answer why some families suffer through multiple miscarriages. It's not going to answer why some people, like my sister Taylor, my sister-in-law, uh, for example, are born with a different amount of chromosomes. 
all of these questions that we have about life, and that for the most part we don't really talk about with others, perhaps we're embarrassed to talk about them, I don't know. A Kohelet is wanting us to find comfort in light of these questions. But he's not introducing sovereignty as some band-aid to shut off our thinking about these things. That the mystery of divine sovereignty won't solve the problem of Habel. There are just some things we can't find out, as he'll get to explaining in verse 11. But the reality of a good and a loving and a merciful and gracious and purposeful sovereign God is a comfort to us through all those things. That we're not alone in them. It means that there's no such thing as meaningless suffering. It means that vanity has a purpose. It means that joy can be ours through all kinds of habel because we know that God is good and because we know that He is in control of everything. We know that the circumstances we aren't, that, that we are in, they're not greater than Him. And we know they won't ultimately ruin or destroy us. This is, this is good news, friends. This, the fact that God is sovereign in all of life happens and all of that happens through providence, means that we can have joy despite whatever is going on in our lives. Not a joy because our circumstances are the way that we want them to be, because how often is our life like that even? But joy because we know that God is in control and we know that he loves us. And especially because he's been good to us in Christ. Because we know there is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Because we know that God is working all things together for good to those who love him, Romans 8.28. Because he first loved us in Christ, 1 John 4.10. That everything happens according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. Habel isn't a reason for us to be depressed or downtrodden. Because we belong to God through Christ, and we know that He's in control. Habel, the repetitiveness of life, along with its trials even, they, for us who fear the Lord, are the grounds of our security and our rejoicing in every day. So let's praise Him for that. And church, let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are far greater than we in our finite minds, can even be able to grasp, Lord. Even trying to understand your sovereignty, Lord, I know that I, not only am I only scratching the surface today, but even the extent of our knowledge seems to only scratch the surface, surface of what it means for you to be sovereign and control, God. But we are glad that that is the way that you are. We are glad that there, the problems that happen in life, the habel of life, isn't meaningless because... You are who you are. We are grateful to you for how you have loved us in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith, that you would make us to trust you more, to believe you more, God, that you would grant us to see you more clearly and to depend upon you through all things. Whatever it is that we're going through, Lord, we are glad to know that you are greater than it and you are in control of it. To you be all glory and praise. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.